Hello everyone, this is the Shudan Bore. My name is Evan Whitus, I'm a junior, history major, and I am the hostess with the mostest. Hi everyone, I'm Zoe Doubles, I'm a junior here at Center College, I'm an anthropology, sociology, and classics double major, and I'll be talking with you today about the Nerarion. Hi, I'm Eli, I'm a sophomore, a behavioral neuroscience major, and my yokai is the Oni. Hi, I'm Lauren Moore, I'm a history major and a sophomore. And my yokai is the Kappa. Hi, I'm Victoria Cummings. I am a junior, a comp sci major, and my yokai is the Kuchisakeona. So to begin, I think it's important that we first establish what exactly is a yokai. It's hard to define yokai exactly, but they are generally synonymous with Japanese folklore. They are essentially ways to explain the unexplainable. Supernatural beings with a wide range of portrayals, from humanoids to inanimate objects. Yokai can be an umbrella term for monsters and creatures, but not Godzilla. It's also important that we help our listeners understand why exactly we're talking about yokai in particular. We mentioned that yokai are synonymous with Japanese folklore. This is significant because Japan's folklore has been deeply rooted in their culture and daily life, even in the modern day. Studying folklore can allow for a greater understanding of that culture. And, with Japan in particular, there have been many large resurgences of yokai within that culture, possibly evolving and changing over time to fit the needs of the people. So, in this cultural context, what is the purpose of the yokai? Yokai can serve as a vehicle for moral and religious ideologies as the local traditions and new religions begin to mix. We'll learn later that yokai have been used to create social or political commentary throughout their history. Since yokai are so closely linked to the culture of Japan, as Japan evolved and modernized, yokai went from cautionary tales to forms of entertainment. So everything that's been said is pretty interesting, but in a generic way. So we're going to get down to sort of brass tacks and really focus on single yokai. And Lauren's going to start us off with that, maybe give you a better idea of what exactly we're talking about. My yokai is the kappa. The kappa has many bizarre traits that make it unique to other yokai. As far as evolution, the kappa goes through extensive changes from region to region, as well as evolutionary changes over time. In Michael Dillon Foster's The Book of Yokai, he discusses how different regions affect the depiction of the kappa, not only in Japan, but throughout the world. Foster explains that through his research, the green frog or turtle-like kappa that have shells on their backs are more of the eastern depiction of the kappa, whereas in western parts of Japan, the kappa is depicted as a hairy creature that walks and resembles a human. This shows the more regional differences of the kappa versus the actual evolution throughout history. As far as evolutionary changes, the kappa became less aggressive and wicked and more of a cute little story about a water creature that likes to sumo wrestle. Including enjoying sumo wrestling, the kappa has a few other neat characteristics, such as an indent on the top of their head that holds water. When this indentation is filled, the kappa has super strength that enhances its sumo capabilities. The older, more wicked kappa would drown children that walked too closely to the body of water the kappa was inhabiting and pull their organs out of their anus. Other than human innards, the kappa also thoroughly enjoy cucumbers. Lastly, the kappa are intelligent in the sense that they can speak in human languages and have extensive medical knowledge. Here's a story about a kappa paraphrased from the virgin told in Michael Dillon Foster's The Book of Yokai. Once upon a time, there was a kappa, or enko, chilling in an outhouse. 
One day, a maid working in a doctor's home went to use the outhouse at night. When out from the toilet, reached a hairy hand with the intent of stroking the maid's butt. Was it a human? Was it a monkey? The maid did not know. And she ran back to the doctor's home and told him of her encounter. The doctor grabbed his sword and went to vanquish the culprit. And as the maid said, a hand again reached out of the toilet at night. The doctor then grabbed the hand and cut it right off, retreating back to his home to examine the hand. The next night, there was a knock on the door. Who could it be? A patient? But no. Standing on the doorstep was the one-handed Enko. Doctor, the Enko said, please return my arm. If I don't apply medicine and reattach it quickly, I won't be able to reattach it at all. I won't do anything bad anymore. It apologized. So, the Kappa is one of the more well-known yokai in modern pop culture. Where is a place that someone could find an example of a Kappa? In modern pop culture, the Kappa pops up in several video games, including Mario, Animal Crossing, Yokai Watch, and Pokemon. As well as video games, the Kappa pops up in several anime series, including Nura, Rise of the Yokai Clan, Inuyasha, and Gintama. How have the Kappa changed over time? I'm aware that they were originally much more horrifying and dangerous creatures, and now they're mostly fun and mischievous. What could be the reason for a paradigm shift like that? As far as the Kappa's evolution over time, they basically changed to fit the needs of the Japanese culture. They were once used as a cautionary tale, adults told children, in order to steer them clear of swimming alone in rivers and ponds. Then, as the people and culture of Japan modernized, so did the Kappa, and the Kappa became a source of entertainment, not only in folklore, but in popular media as well. Unlike the Kappa, the Oni have stayed remarkably consistent over time. The mythical Oni are a prolific race of yokai that have been part of the Japanese cosmology for centuries. Characterized by devil-like horns, red or blue skin, large fangs, and a terrible ogre-like countenance, the Oni are feared and loathed. Shuten Doji, which translates to drunken demon, is the king of the Oni. In the following tale, he is accused of kidnapping, cannibalizing, and enslaving the maidens of Kyoto. We follow the famed warrior hero Minamoto no Raiko in his quest to bring Shuten Doji to justice. While on the trail to the Oni's fortress, Raiko and his men came upon three old men in a brushwood hut concealed inside a cavern. Peering into the makeshift dwelling, Raiko asked the occupants, What sort of strange beings could you be? One of the old men replied back, We are not strange creatures. One is from Kekanakori of Sioux province, another is from Ot Otona Shisato of Ki province, and the other is from Yamashiro, close to the capital. Our wives and children have been stolen by the demon named Shuten Doji, who lives over this mountain. We recently arrived ourselves, seeking revenge for our wives and children being taken away, but in looking at you closely, you don't appear to be ordinary priests. I understand that you are here by imperial command to subjugate Shuten Doji. By all means, we three old men will show you the way. Put down your panniers, relax, and rest from your journey. Raiko accepted the old men's welcome. As you said, we are lost in the mountain and are quite fatigued. We shall then take a rest. Raiko and his party put down their satchels, unpacked the sake, and presented it to the three men. One of the old men advised Raiko, You must enter the demon's dwelling stealthily, by any means possible. The chief demon always drinks sake, and so he is called Shuten Doji. After he becomes intoxicated and lies down, he becomes oblivious to the goings-on around him. We have in our possession a special kind of sake known as Jinben Kidoku. If demons drink this sake, they lose their supernatural flying powers and become disoriented. But if you drink the sake, it is medicinal. 
That is why for generations it has been recognized as a divine elixir, poisonous to demons. Now the sake will prove its wonders again. Then the old man produced a hobnailed helmet and handed it to Raiko. Please put on this helmet when you decapitate the demon. It will protect you. Assessing the situation, Raiko's troop was convinced that the three old men were deities representing the three shrines they had visited before embarking on their mission. Overwhelmed, the six men shed tears of gratitude, their appreciation being beyond words. The Oni are more than just boogeymen or fairy tale villains. They have transcended Japanese history with references and acknowledgments in varied facets of Japan's culture and cosmology. Shuten Doji belongs to a literary genre called Otogi Zoshi, which translates to companion tales. Short stories written during the 14th through 17th centuries for entertainment and moral or religious edification. As one might expect from a major work of literature originating from this time period, there is a not-so-subtle message that warriors who ascribe to Buddhism and or Shinto are certain to triumph. Raiko's character is the quintessential devout warrior hero, and his victory over the drunken demon is but one of his fabled exploits. The significance of Shuten Doji goes beyond the importance of piety and entertainment value. The Oni came to represent the outsiders of Japanese culture. Thus, no full appreciation of the Shuten Doji legend is complete without the consideration of Oni as societal outcasts, the disenfranchised, the indigent, and the uninitiated. So you say that the Oni have become the face of the outsiders. Is there any sense of cultural sympathy or empathy towards the Oni, or are they simply inherently evil? For the most part, Oni are simply inherently evil. There are certainly cases of benevolent or more trickstery and less evil or dangerous oni but those are certainly anomalies and as a general theme the oni are not sympathized with or particularly liked there's no real redeeming qualities or interest in the well-being of the oni there are two main versions of the tale of Shuten Doji, one originating in the Oeyama region during the 14th century and the other from the Ibukiyama region during the 16th century. The tales are fairly similar but vary in some details. For example, the Oeyama version is set on Mount Oe, while in the Ibukiyama version, the Oni's fortress sits on Mount Ibuki. Furthermore, the later Ibukiyama version explains Shuten Doji's origins as the archenemy of the Buddha, the evil king of the sixth heaven or celestial realm as well as tying in other major characters like Raiko and the Emperor to Buddhist entities Bishamon Ten, which is Vice Ravana in Sanskrit, one of the Four Kings of Heaven, and Muroku, or Maitreya in Sanskrit, future Buddha for this world. The Oni have not been reserved for folklore and classic literature. They have been present in Japanese popular culture since their inception. Samurai would shape and paint their helmets and armor to resemble the fearsome Oni to terrify their foes. Later, the Oni were specifically utilized by the Japanese government to unite the divided geographic regions against foreign outsiders. So you also mentioned that the Oni was used to unite geographic regions of wartime Japan. Would you like to expound upon that? Of course. So during the Tokugawa Shogunate, the government decided that they wanted to unite the Japanese people under a single umbrella, which had not happened before really. Uh, because they were divided by geographic region, as an archipelago, they did not really identify as a single cultural group. People from the north side of Japan did not necessarily see themselves as part of the same identity as somebody from further south. So to unite the Japanese people, they created this sort of other or outside that they could all unite against, and they used the oni as a symbol for this. 
the oni came to represent anything non-japanese and in opposition to what is not japanese the japanese people united and became part of a single japanese identity and then later in time during the pacific war the oni were used as a symbol for the caucasian aggressors who were invading and attacking in japan and in neighboring coastal territories throughout the pacific so the government used textbooks and in particular the story of momotaro the peach boy to create a united front against the non-japanese foreign invaders and outsiders oni have been depicted in modern entertainment titles like dragon ball z dungeons and dragons one piece mortal kombat street fighter and pokemon my yokai is Narihyon. The name Narihyon is also is important and sort of gives insight into this yokai's character. Narihyon is synonymous with Narari Girari, which refers to something or someone with no place to grab onto. Also, when it's written in the characters, Narihyon means slippery and gourd, which may or may not refer to its nature and the shape of its head. There are a bunch of different physical descriptions of Narihyon, and I'm going to tell you some of my favorites. Michael Foster, the author of The Book of Yokai, talks about these different types, starting off with the well-known, big-headed, bald, monk-like figure that was popularized by Sawaki Zushi's Hayakai Zuken in 1737. Now, while he draws a picture of this yokai, there is no mention of its nature in this text, adding to Narihon's mystery, a folklorist, Fujisawa Morihiko, in 1929, describes Narihon as the yokai no Oyadama, or leader of the yokai, but he fails to give a reason for this title. This theme of Narihon as a leader is now widely accepted and is the main focal point of a few mangas and animes. As to Narihon's origins, no one is certain where this yokai originated, and why he is what he is. There are some speculations, though, the main one being that Narihon evolved, in a sense, from an ocean yokai that also goes by the name Narihon. This yokai is a spherical object that looks like a human head, that is said to disappear when sailors reach out for it, only to bob up a little further away. Narihyon is described as a catfish-like creature in the Ukiyo-e Zushi Kosniki Hai Duku Bara, and this is a direct quote from it. Narihyon looks like a catfish without eyes or a mouth. It is a spirit of deception. He is eventually described as the old monk-like figure by Sawaki Sushi. A classic story of Narihyon is... One hectic day, when the household is running around with barely a second to think, Narihyon slips casually into the house and sits down to a cup of tea, acting as if he were the lord of the manor. People who see him, and the casual ease with which he takes authority, assume that he must indeed be the lord. They fall upon themselves, serving him, and don't realize how they have been deceived until he is gone. Narihyon may also have some political significance, similar to political cartoons today. During the Edo period, the social structure was built on honor and function, and there are four different classes, the highest of which were the samurai, 
and they were followed by the farmers, artisans, and merchants. Merchants, however, were looked down upon due to their lack of function. Samurai were warriors, farmers produced the food, artisans, and made goods. Merchants only sold the goods produced by others, making them almost parasitic in nature because they profit from the work of others. In a famous drawing of Nurarihon by Toriyama Seiken, Nurarihon is depicted as a wealthy townsperson, wearing fancy robes, carrying a single sword, and stepping out of a palanquin into a house. This could have been Senken's way of depicting a political viewpoint he had, or just conveying the social status of merchants at the time as deceptive and taking advantage of others. In modern times, the Nerari Hyon is seen as the supreme leader of the yokai, and while he is no less of a shifty character, there is a sense of nobility in the leadership, honor, and responsibility that he is now associated with. Mizuki Shigeru, a modern-day manga author and anthropologist, has created a set of manga tales involving him as a leader, as well as the old man who will sneak into your house and eat your food and drink your tea. There's another manga series, Nurariho no Magu, and it's correlating anime Nura, Rise of the Yokai Clan, that follows the grandson of Nurarihon and his human and yokai adventures. So you say that Nurahion had a bit of a shadowy emergence onto the scene of the yokai. Are there any relevant cultural aspects that we could trace its origin back to, such as the fishing culture of Japan or anything along those lines? There isn't anything specific to our modern-day version of Nurarihyon. Some say that he evolved from an ocean yokai that shares the name Nurarihyon. And so I guess that's the commonality in the fishing culture. But the, basically this yokai is a spherical object that bobs in the waves. And other people consider it to be a type of, well, consider Nurarihyon to be a type of umibozu which is another more dangerous ocean yokai. And other people contend that our modern-day Nurarihon is just a fabrication from Toriyama Seiken's uh, drawing. My yokai is the Kuchisake Ona. She is the most modern yokai in our podcast. Her story, like all others, traveled originally by word of mouth, so there are quite a few different versions of her story. This is a paraphrased version of her story by Saito Shuhei, which contains many of the different pieces of her story. When walking alone on a dark night, a woman may sneak up to you. Kuchisake Ona came into being because there was this very beautiful woman, and she was concerned that her mouth was too small. She went to a certain cosmetic surgery clinic and had an operation, but there was a tragic mistake with the operation to make her mouth larger, and the instant she saw her face after the operation, she went insane. So what was the importance of making this story about cosmetic surgery? So several of our sources have said that it was structured as a cautionary tale because of criticism towards those who strayed away from traditional standards of beauty, as well as the anxiety about the shifting role of women in Japan at the time. Usually she wears a large mask and asks people, am I pretty? If they say yes, she will remove the mask, say, even like this, and show her mouth. If you see that and try to escape, she will come after you and kill you with a scythe. She is exceedingly fast and can soon catch anybody, but she has a weakness of not liking the odor of pomade. So if you say pomade three times, it is said that you can escape her. If you couldn't guess, the name Kuchisake Ona translates directly to slit mouth woman. Though the first documented appearance of the Kuchisake Ona was in the Jifu Prefecture in 1978, 
Her story is debated to have been made earlier due to the ties people created between the Kuchisakeona and other yokai. In our source by Michael Villan Foster, Pandemonium and Parade, he talks about the resurgence of nostalgia for yokai during the 70s and 80s and discusses how the Kuchisakeona was the first modern yokai to be created after the died down during the Meiji era. Foster suggests that her creation may have come about as a result of the saturation of yokai in popular culture at the time, combined with the rise of cosmetic surgery and motifs that were already present in other stories. So you mentioned that the creation of the Kuchisakeona is debated. Do you think that matters, or does the resurgence in the late 70s steal the show and become the quintessential version? Though there may have been stories in the past that were similar to the Kuchisakeonas, and a lot of the motifs in the story are the same, I think this new version of the Kuchisakeona in the 70s is most important. And the reason we may think that her existence is debated previously is because of the ties they created between her and other yokai. Unlike those mentioned previously, the Kuchisakeona is a yokai that is human. She is seen as otherworldly, being extremely fast and deadly with the rules that come with being a yokai, but she began as a woman with horrible disfigurement. The rise of yokai popularity during this time led to the Kuchisakeona being validated as existing previously through pre-existing yokai such as the Amamba and Ubume, both old crones of the mountain. She became tied with them because of the involvement of children in all stories, due to the fact that she exclusively preyed on children in some renditions of the tale. She was the first yokai that really had a place in modern urban Japan, a woman who could feasibly show up on any street corner. This new kind of yokai was extremely popular. I mentioned previously that the first recorded evidence of her tale was in December 1978, but the tale spread so quickly that in June of the following year, her tale was known all over Japan, with reports of the story in every prefecture, including Okinawa and Hokkaido. According to the statistics reported by Kinoshita Tomio, in 1979, some 99% of children knew her tale in some form. This popularity continued with illustrations and storytelling from Mizuki Shigeru, and her story is now the topic of many popular movies and horror stories inside and outside of Japan. So now that we've heard from our experts in a one-on-one setting about their individual yokai, uh, we're going to open up the mic to open discussion between the experts about their yokai and whatever questions they would like to bring, and I will conclude on that. Through my research, I noticed that the kappa has changed significantly over time, as I mentioned before, and I was just wondering if any of the other experts in the room would like to hone in on how their yokai has changed or has not. I mean, I know certain motifs about the Kuchisakeona have always been around, and there's always been some sort of monster who chases people in the dark. Some forms of her story were supposedly around in the Edo period, but as she exists right now is mainly the yokai. She is. And it's it's sort of similar with Nerarihyun. There's this creature who's also called Nerarihyun as an ocean yokai that I've discussed before, but there people are skeptical about his origin and if they're the same creature and they've just evolved. So it's more of Nerarihyun's more of a modern, and I say modern loosely, like 17th, seven, yeah, 17th century kind of, but um, he's more of just the supreme leader now and how we depict him is not even remotely like how he was in ancient times. There seems to be a, a usual theme or, or core feature that stays with the yokai and then 
there are other features that will kind of change and develop, but with Mayokai, the Oni, they've stayed pretty much exactly the same since their inception. They were first seen in ancient scrolls from the 8th century, and then the first actual depictions of them are from the Buddhist hell scrolls from the 12th century, and since then they look pretty much exactly the same, they behave the same way. There's very little measurable change in how they've been presented or, and conceptualized in Japanese history. So the exact origins of the Oni are kind of unclear. We aren't sure if they were a Japanese conception that was implanted into the Buddhist cosmology or if they existed in Buddhism and then became part of the Japanese culture later on when Buddhism became a major religion in Japan. What about the rest of you, Yokai? Are they all uniquely Japanese or are there outside sources that were co-opted and developed and made them what they are that were foreign or unfamiliar? As far as I know, the Nurarihyon is very much just Japanese. It was, depending on what evolutionary stance you go, it could have just been like from the fishing culture and sailors, so that might be thing to look into further if they came from Chinese sailors or etc. Some, something like that. But as we know it from my research, the Nurari home we have today is very much Japanese in origin. I know that Kuchisakayana has actual documented evidence of showing up in the Jifu prefecture, though aspects of the story have popped up in stories all over the world. It's just something fundamental to storytelling. But as she is, as the story is, she is fundamentally Japanese. I know that the Kappa is one of the original yokai that dates back to the classical period. And from my research, the Kappa is strictly Japanese. It originated in Japan, and to my knowledge, there are no outside influences from like China or India or anywhere else that helped create the Kappa or influence it in any certain way. So I know my yokai has a lot of different rules for how you're supposed to behave around it. Did you guys find the same in your research? There aren't so many so much rules for behavior around Oni, but there is a festival on the day before Rishun, or the first day of spring, in which people will throw beans around their house or out windows and say, out with Oni, in with good fortune. And this is because the day before the first day of spring, the transitionary period where the lines between the spirit world and the real world, they get a little bit blurry. So there's potential for good and bad spirits to enter our world. People will use the beans and the little chant to try to ensure good luck and good fortune for the coming spring and the new, and the new year that goes along with it. Although the Kappa is like kind of wicked sometimes and very mischievous, they're also a very respectful and like polite creatures. So the saucer on the top of their head that holds water that gives them like the super the super like uh, human strength I guess that they use for sumo wrestling has a counter. If you bow to a kappa that has challenged you to a sumo wrestling match, they will be forced to bow back because of how respectful little creatures they are, and they will in turn spill the liquid on their head, which causes all their super strength to just fade away and then <laughs> and then you're left with the easily beaten kappa versus the super strong one so i guess that would be one kind of like rule that the kappa has isn't there something where if you beat them in sumo wrestling or if you trick them like that they have to grant a wish or something or you can make them your friend right so 
as being polite and respectful, they're also very honorable. So if they do get beaten, you know, they think that you're, you know, you tricked them. You've, you've honestly like earned something and that's where their super like supreme medical knowledge comes in. So like if you, you need, you know, assistance in some sort of medical field or something like that, I don't really know, but they're also very loyal. So if you need a friend or you know, a little servant guy. He'll he'll uh, he'll tag along for and you know not really pester you or your ancestors or anything like that. So yeah, I guess that is kind of another rule that he has. Well, that's polite. Even though it may be hard to pinpoint exactly, what do you all think is the most important factor in the cultural longevity of the yokai? In my opinion, I think the religious syncretism of the Japanese region and really the of East Asia in general is the most important. Uh, because these yokai and the r- local religious beliefs were co-opted into the Shinto cosmology and, and into the Buddhist cosmology, uh, these are long-lasting and still enduring to this day religions, and because the yokai were a part of them and were accepted into them, they have main, or they've remained as uh, significant as they have because the religions are as significant as they still are. There's also like a political social hierarchy kind of side to it. So in modern day, the example would be of a political cartoon of a prominent figure with like caricature, like um, characteristics. So it's just a way of expressing a political view that you are in opposition with or a hierarchical system that may or may not be oppressive to different social ranks and it's just a way to get that point across without being too terribly out in the open about it. Along with that, I think that folklore is fundamental to Japanese culture. Despite westernization and globalization, Japan has deliberately stayed as Japanese or authentic as possible and the yokai are one of the ways that we can see that. Each of the yokai mentioned changed with Japan's culture over time, but were never abandoned entirely as a fundamental part of their culture. I hope in this episode of the podcast, we were able to leave you with some interesting new knowledge and understanding. The idea of yokai is very popular in Japanese tales. It will most likely appear again, so listen closely and keep what you've learned here today in mind. This is Evan Whitus with the Shudan Boy. Thank you for listening, and we hope the rest of your day is the best of your day.